You're listening to the following program on TFN Audio from the Fantasy Network, where independent creators and fans of fantasy, sci-fi, horror, and gaming meet to create, stream, and support the shows that they love. Creator-distributed, fan-supported, that's TFN. Find this and many more great programs at watch.thefantasy.network slash audio. Nothing brings people together like a shared threat, though when that threat gets a little more existential, the togetherness can start to fray at the edges. And in the middle, especially if there was a tough stain that had to be scrubbed, and you let it sit too long. I don't like doing laundry, but I do love finding about what comes next on this episode of Vorpal History. I'm your host, Ashford Wilhelm, and we're back at the Dunwellmish colony's early days. The colonists had faced numerous hazards, made an uneasy peace with using necromancy for public service, and managed to keep population decline at a manageable level, but more on that later on. The adventuring population wasn't very impressed with this new-ish world, with only the one mysterious temple that was known, of which had an apparently low risk-to-reward ratio. Predatory beasts abounded, however, so they'd taken to what amounted to safaris. Eventually, the other colonists complained about the large amounts of rotting monster meat having accidentally fallen off a cart rather than being burned or buried as the governor had ordered. Someone hit on the idea of tossing the remains into the ocean, but this attracted enough sea life that was not only dangerous but amphibious as well. The colony's scribe, Lannis Caxton, detailed the adventuring populace's next idea. Monday, the 9th of Iftern. After the unfortunate odors and maladies brought on by an overabundance of rotting carcasses, some few took to the idea of attempting to tame the beasts of this land and use them as mounts for labor and war. As one might expect, and was indeed predicted, by many who shall remain nameless in their correct assessments and foresight, the deaths and injuries from these endeavors were quite substantial. It shall be noted that some success was made with a few of the less intelligent varieties of bloodthirsty horrors available, but now the problem of keeping them fed and not as interested in dining on colonists had to be addressed. This, in turn, incentivized more hunting, leading to again the resulting waste and awful thereof, though perhaps lacking as much protein as before. Lord Stonecarp is of a mixed view regarding the war beasts, as their often injured owners call them, as one must admit they're quite effective engines of destruction when pointed in the right direction. Our Lord has even commissioned another in a series of portraits of himself for the Dunwellmish Historical Society's gallery, showing him atop one of the more fearsome creatures that can be fitted with a saddle. To my knowledge, Lord Stonecarp has yet to actually ride one of the monstrous mounts, but he assures me the image of him guiding one into the oncoming goblin horde is meant to capture the historical inspiration his leadership provides, if not actual events. Our blacksmith, still learning how to work his forge without setting himself on fire, assures us that he'll create the lance seen in the painting for the gallery just as soon as he works out how to make one without the pronounced curvature and stunted length of his current attempts. On a positive note, these not-lances have been useful for dragging deceased fauna away from the colony when attached to ropes affixed to other 
more hopefully agreeable fauna. Also, the Dunwellmish Historical Society's founding date has yet to be determined, as this author hasn't had a chance to see if the portrait artist noted what day they finished Lord Stonecop's painting. That painting still hangs in the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, though the lance was never recovered. It did exist, and was last seen being used in one of the earlier Civil Wars. Apparently, the smith had learned how to make metal weapons look nice, but not how to make them effective. The fact that most lances were primarily wood with metal at the pointy end wasn't part of his meager training, though it's not certain that knowledge would have helped much. The lance hooks did see use during the occasional famine, when the spoils of hunting weren't edible, if not toxic, and the unconsumable meat was used as bait for some of the larger things living in the nearby ocean. Even when it didn't quite work out, there were fewer mouths to feed, so swings roundabouts, I guess. But in addition to the colony's other challenges, the priests of Nalan and Ora both started getting bad vibes about something on the horizon. The historical horizon, not, not the real one. Unfortunately, it was kind of hard to decipher what their connections to the higher realms were telling them and the way they taught their clergy to write things down. There's probably a correlation somewhere. Anyway, this is from the Reverend Pontificate of Nalan, Prato du Mort. I find myself moved to record the communing I held with Most Holy Nalan, or his servants, on this, the eleventh day of Lifturn, in the year by which the Countess fourteen and six added to thirty. Mine eyes were lifted to the most unclean bastion of shenanigary, those who wear the crimson mark and garb of midnight do unspeakable acts. It exists as a blight upon this place Nalan has seen fit to deliver us unto, as my vision will attest. To say it rends the land is to understate the vile presence it has, for it hides its true nature behind many veils of confusion and misdirection. It upends the very nature of creation, and Nalan bids us take heed and mark well the path we must choose. We are warned not to take the way that turns back on itself, nor the one marked with friendly signs, as if we seek a fair in a meadow. No, not even if there be promises of candied fruits and funnel cake. The path we must take is the one that undoes the foothold. Some might say the feethold, and even the leghold, that lies mere days from our new dwellings. It is there that we must look whatever rests there in however many eyes it may have, and shout defiance in the name of that which we hold dear. Which should be holy, Nalan, if I am to be thorough in my testimony? For I still can't fathom what the Orlons see in their lesser god. Yes, they can be fine people, but really... So at home reap afar, find faith in dark as well as light. These platitudes, among others, are the signs of misinterpretation of divine missive at best, assuming they don't worship a cosmic prankster that's leading them to their ultimate destruction, though I shall not voice that opinion here. Then there's that incense they breathe in until they can barely stand, and they eat things tainted with coriander. Bloody weak tastes of soap. To conclude, my vision ended with what can only be a portent that our colony will be doomed, lest we revisit the forbidden pit of vile wrongness and send it back whence it came. The vision wasn't clear on whence exactly that was, but it was of a certainty not here. He was talking about the oddball ruins and the people running around in black outfits that the colonists had encountered before. It also found evidence that, whatever the place was, it wasn't exactly obeying the normal laws of linear space-time. I'm cribbing from some documents from the colony wizard Angstrom there. 
I make no claims of being a quantum thaumaturgist. Anyway, Reverend Dumort's counterpart in the Church of Aura, prelate Nuncio Felix Rispaza, had similar goings-on that he committed to parchment as well. He was also fluent in clergy ease. Know now that ye who read these words should know that the mind of Aura was opened unto this humble vessel, Felix Rispaza, and mine eyes held a vision most unsettling and heinous. Yon ancient rubble that spat forth people most terrifying and off-putting must be made absent utterly, yea, verily, and quickly, lest we find ourselves erased. I saw, yea, verily, something stirred among the people in dark vestments. They arose, some appearing out of nothing that was not nothing, but appeared to be nothing to mine eyes. But though this may have be a cause for war, Aura gave unto me a revelation. War will deliver unto the ruins the one that shall deliver us from destruction. Forgive me, I had hold of these thoughts only a moment ago. A pox upon the acolyte who failed to sufficiently fill my incense brazier. Ah, the vision returns to my mind. We must go forth and do battle with this unknown enemy, but the final victory shall be due to one who knows not their purpose, and who knows not their instrumentality of destinitude. Destinus. Destiny caps? There are three paths presented to you. Dice Tower Theater presents Dawn of Dragons, a fantasy audio drama. Dice Tower Theater, now appearing on TFN Audio from the Fantasy Network. Creator distributed, fan supported. Here, the prelate is assumed to have overdone things a bit. But when both he and the Reverend presented their prophetic visions to Lord Stonecarp, it was enough to at least want to shut them up about things. He'd forbidden anyone going to the ruined temple, but that edict hadn't exactly stopped anyone who was determined. Before, this temple ruin wasn't much of an historical touchstone. It was just one of those oddball things our founders ran into as they tried to make a go of being newcomers in a land that was apparently tired of folks like them before they arrived. That was before a recent discovery of the governor's black ledger. I'll let the Wikipedia article do the honors of describing it. The Governor's Black Ledger, or the Dunwellmish Book of Secrets, is a record detailing previously unknown events, places, and potential threats in and around the Dunwellmish colony. Penned mostly by the colony's official scribe, Lannis Caxton, the Black Testament was intended to pass down things Governor Stonecarp's successors would likely need to be aware of, defend against, or avoid altogether. Believed to have been started in 1436, the book was a collaborative work between Stone Carp, the heads of the colony's churches, a senior wizard named Angstrom, and Scribe Caxton, the latter figure apparently endeavoring to keep the instructions and records from being too diplomatic or circumspect when direct language was required. It was found hidden in the governor's hall, sequestered in a modest extra-dimensional space over the governor's official desk. It remained undiscovered thanks to the presence of other thaumaturgical items of interest on display, as the hall itself is now an historical monument and museum. When the objects had been removed for cleaning and restoration, a remaining magic field was found, and the space opened, revealing the Black Testament. 
It resisted attempts to read it until researchers recalled the many doors, safes, liquor cabinets, etc. that would only open at the command of the official governor of the colony. Once someone was named as governor, the book opened, and the text could be read under the proper circumstances. See below. That was the hard part. Since parts of the books still look indecipherable. The newly sworn-in governor could read the preface explaining what the book was for, but there were other conditions that had to be met for certain sections of the text to be unlocked. There's a lot of debate over if these are embarrassing to colonial officials or if they're things the writers didn't want to encourage later generations to go hunting for. They knew their people, I guess. Some of the book unscrambled if the governor thought of specific topics, which is how we know about the section regarding the ruined temple. Apparently, if the rightful reader knows there's something funky going on with people in black outfits near Dunwellmish, the book thinks it's probably a good idea to fill them in on what happened. It's been discovered that a sanctified priest of Oan or Nalan can cause some of the text to decipher itself, but it makes other pages re-encrypt. This tells us that those involved didn't quite trust one another or think that they all needed to know everything. Researchers are also exploring if different combinations of authorized readers will open up certain pages to being read. They haven't figured out exactly what Angstrom's title or valid ID for this book is yet, and him being a wizard makes it difficult, since in theory, he could still be alive somewhere. This thought has been followed up with one that if there's something that only he'd be allowing himself to read, maybe it's best it stay hidden. Needless to say, this is one of many historical artifacts that require people from the local authorities and hazardous materials disposal services to be present, just in case they find something really unpleasant has had a subdivision built over it. But that brings us to what has been read, and since the scholars who managed to open the book were well-versed on Dunwellmish's past, the parts about the ruined temple became legible almost immediately. Summary of topics and facts discussed in the first meeting of the Dunwellmish Unpleasant Realities Committee. Attending was Lord Callum Stonecarp, Governor, Praetor Dumort, Reverend Pontificate of Nalin, Felix Rispaza, Prelate Nuncio of Oan, Angstrom, Wizard, Affiliation Unprovided and Not Made an Issue of, Lennis Caxton, Colony Scribe. It was decided by his lordship that something was to be done regarding the ruins our colonists, including the one working this quill, visited and were mystified by. Recently the heads of the two churches in our colony have both been given ominous visions or dreams about the accursed temple, and Lord Stonecarp decided that a meeting must be held to gather what was known and what must be done. His lordship revealed that, while exact numbers are unknown, the black-clad temple denizens had been responsible for the abduction of at least thirty colonists that we could confirm. However, of these we had approximately fifty-seven replacements that had found their way back to Dunwellmish. They fell into two categories. Category the first, they looked like those who had disappeared and were mostly of sound mind, apart from a harrowing tale of being absconded with. More alert relatives and friends, if they had them, reported that these victims of unwilling relocation appeared to be missing memories of past events or had new ones entirely. In a few cases, this was useful, as they had returned having learned a trade of some kind or didn't recall having loaned you money. In others, this caused friction when they remembered living in a different home that was now occupied by someone else. The ones that were rapidly becoming problematic were those who hadn't been here before. They remembered a voyage, and most of them remembered Lord Stonecarp, but a few claimed that someone named Viscount Paldini Ruark was in charge of the colony. 
one particularly skittish fellow who was found to scream in terror at nearly everything, swore on the name of some unknown god that the governor was named John Winthrop and the colony was called some unpronounceable words that the man couldn't even spell. Angstrom said he knew something of what was occurring, but it might be blasphemous to those present. Lord Stonecarp assured everyone that all thoughts could be freely shared without fear of retribution. <clears throat> I shall see how that works out. It was at this point that the reverend and prelate described each other in rather profane detail. When they had been calmed, Lord Stonecarp amended his previous statement to mean that for the purposes of this meeting it was vital that no one limit the shedding of their knowledge, expertise, and speculative prowess. The two clergy leaders appeared to understand and seemed to be of lighter spirit, having unburdened themselves. I'm going to interrupt here as it gets really difficult to read aloud without getting a headache. Basically, Angstrom laid out the many worlds interpretation several hundred years before it was formally recognized by modern science. So if you take that concept described by a magician and run it through a layman's transcription of it from several centuries ago, it goes on for page after page, especially as it includes a question and answer session that nearly ended with Angstrom threatening to use a telepathy spell to cram the concepts into the skulls of everyone present. To the wizard's surprise, the two religious leaders found the concept not entirely out of the question, but more on that next episode. It was then that Angstrom finally was able to describe his interpretation of the visions had by the holy men in our gathering. Your gods have warned us of a coming calamity from this place that spans many worlds. We must assemble our forces to reach it high, but it won't be removed as a threat until one mind wills it to be so. To their credit, both the Reverend and Prelate volunteered to be the savior of Dunwellmish. The wizard had thanked them for their bravery, only rolling his eyes a small amount. If the gods had chosen one of you, I think they would have at least made that clear. We need a focused mind, one so determined to have things be as they believe they should be, that even in the face of utter destruction they would at least demand that everything be put in order so as to not create any more of a mess than needed. It was at this point that I had apparently, without uttering a word and yet knowing it had happened, volunteered to somehow be the savior of Dunwellmish. I have been told that due to the nature of this endeavor, there will likely not be a portrait of me in the Dunwellmish Historical Society Gallery. Angstrom said I could take comfort in the possibility that should I fail, we're all doomed anyway, so I'd be getting ahead of the rush. I must stop talking to wizards. I never find the conversations to be good for my nerves. And with that cliffhanger, we'll pick up with the preparations Dunwellmish's leaders make to send their scribe into the jaws of... something. We'll see that the phrase, rewriting history, could be taken literally, given the right circumstances, and the right scribe. We'll also learn a little something about how many religions deal with the concepts of fate and destiny, kind of. It's about as complicated as rolling dice, but there are a lot of dice involved. And that's been another episode of Vorpal History, a look at our fantastic past that, for all you know, is completely true. Citations might actualize if the waveform collapses in the right way, but until then, be sure to double-check facts from a podcast. You can hear more episodes of Vorpal History and a lot of other great shows on the Fantasy Network.
Of all the realms they could have found, this was the most malevolent. For beyond the border of despair stand the gates of Eridol. These are the Chronicles of Eridol. A happy-go-lucky and good hand production. Anyone there? Ah, Charlie. Cassie. Welcome back. (laughs) (laughs) Now appearing on TFN Audio from the Fantasy Network.